Welcome to the General Spec Podcast. How are you keeping? It's great to be here. I'm good. I'm good. Not seeing you in a while. It's been it's been a long time. Um, we'll uh, we'll definitely get into how we know each other uh, in in the pod. Um, but yeah, pleasure to, have to talk to you. And for people listening in, Liam, I'll just give you a bit of a bit of introduction. Yeah, you'll, please go you'll, for it. you'll fill in the gaps, please. <laughs> so, Liam, you're a, a Charlton native. Uh, you're an award-winning journalist, um, political editor of the Echo in Liverpool, uh, two-time specialist uh, writer of the year, the Regional Press Awards. Um, your special interests are, include highlighting a social injustice. Uh, you're also, a, as I can see right here, you're a craft IPA fan. Um, <laughs> you're father to Billy. And uh, you, I can confirm that you're not 6.2 centimetres tall. You should put out that Billy is a dog. <laughs> <laughs> that, just, just in case anyone got a... Uh, although it, I guess we can announce as your first exclusive on the podcast that uh, in September I will be father to an actual human being as well, um, with my wife is, uh, is due to give birth in September, so there's your first exclusive. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I, again, congratulations uh, to Liam and Tui. So Liam, let's bring it all the way back to your, uh, your, your early days. Um, you're a political editor, you're a journalist... Growing up as a kid, were you was that something you're always interested in, or and how did how did you first get into it? Um, probably like most kids, I was I was I was mainly interested in sort of TV and playing in the street and stuff like that and football and, and everything. But as I got a little bit older and a bit more just aware, I guess, um, yeah, I got I got more interested in in you know things like just watching the news, for mm-hmm. example, which and my parents always had on. Um, my parents were both really intelligent and politically minded people. Um, very kind of left wing people who who you know see injustice and, and want to do something about it. Um, have both have both got involved in politics at different times, so yeah, talking to them and, and kind of um, you know newspapers were always in the mm. house. That was always a big a big part of things. Usually the Guardian, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I think the older I got, you know, by the time I was in my sort of teenage years and I was starting to pick up more things about what I was what was happening in the world. Um, major events and, and yeah and politics and and I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I was t- always going to be a political journalist but I was quite good at English at school that yeah. was like one of the I was not good at maths or science I was terrible at them actually and English was like my mum's an English teacher so that was probably part of it uh-huh. um, writing and creative writing and that that was definitely going to be my thing so as as I moved forward in life I, I started to realize that those two interests of being quite interested in, in writing and different types of writing and, you know, news and current affairs, mm-hmm. it kind of merged together and it just made a lot of sense that, that sort of journalism and political journalism and would be the path that I would I would want to go down eventually. But it, it took a few twists and turns before I got there. You know, I came out of university after the financial crash yep. and, like, everyone told me that you will not get a job in journalism. I remember having a, a careers advice talk um, and this guy just said, "Just do anything else. Journalism is the last place you're going to get a job." Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I believed him for a while, and and then I sort of decided shortly after, a short while after that that I would at least give it a go. And yeah, well, I'm sure we'll come on to that. What, what did um, what did you actually study? So I at uni, yeah, I studied English literature and creative writing because okay. people had told me, and I, I I had um I guess to show my early interest in like year ten at school. Um, so I don't know how old are you then, like 14 or something? Um, I had done a, a two-week placement at um, BBC oh, right. Northwest Tonight, which was really interesting. Um, I think it was year 10, maybe. Yeah. And 
that was really interesting and just seeing how the news was put together and doing going out on a few jobs that really sparked my interest but then yeah and then i think people who i knew in the industry had said get a proper degree like get, yeah. a, get a, a traditional degree you know an english a history or something like that because if things don't go right with journalism you've got you've got that to fall back on rather than say doing a full journalism degree um, and then if you still want to do it when you get your, your degree you can then do a postgraduate and get all the qualifications you need to get into the media industry basically so so yeah i did um, english literature and creative writing at lancaster university uh-huh. had a absolute ball there it's like a campus uni so everyone lives on campus yeah. we lived on campus the whole time it was just like a big fun summer camp <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it was it was great fun um but yeah once i then got onto the postgraduate which was at salford uni in media city um that's when i really started to take it properly seriously and was that when uh, you also did some, I uh, remember you t- gave me some stories of uh, your placements and stuff. Was that within Salford? Did you do your yeah. work placements? Yeah, I did a few. I did, I did one at the Manchester Evening News, the Bolton Evening News, who I would later go on to work for, um, Radio Manchester as well. Um, so sort of getting all, all aspects of it. And, and, you know, the good thing about the media and journalism is there's so many different aspects of it. You can do broadcast, you can do radio, television, mm. written, um, and I wasn't, I, I felt I was quite okay at all of it, mm-hmm. quite enjoyed being on camera, quite enjoyed the radio stuff, but always liked writing. So, and to be honest, these days in, in, in any form of journalism, having like multimedia skills is uh. is really important because like at The Echo, you know, we have ostensibly a, a newspaper and a news website, but we do videos, we do audio, we do uh, hosted events and stuff like that. So it's good to have all those yeah. things to your bow, really. Um, but yeah, I, I found um, the course was really good, but getting into newsrooms and like experiencing newsrooms was like... The biggest learning curve for me like you know it, and it, it's some some of the traditional things are true about people barking orders at you across <laughs> the, the office and saying oh, i'm on deadline and all this stuff and you know it's not all true but it, it was exciting did you really did you wear a hat with a piece with of paper a press card and i said this one's going all the way to city hall <laughs> uh, not quite like that but yeah there was it, especially when because even then there was more of a print traditional print vibe yeah you know this was what this was probably 20 2011 i think i did that course so, you know, um, at the Bolton Evening News, for example, it was still entirely based around the kind of print yeah. product. And it was literally, there was a deadline at 5pm that everyone's stories had to be filed by. And as yeah. it got closer and closer to that, it got more stress and more tension in the newsroom and people saying, I'm on deadline, I'm on deadline. And it, yeah, it was really exciting, actually. I bet, I bet. Um, that's brilliant. And I just uh, so as to go over some of the, um, well, well, let's get into how we know each other. We, Liam and I... Um, we used to live together um, to the glory days in of the, the palace. <laughs> um, and I remember when I when I moved in, uh, you're you're working in the the, the Bolton the Bolton News. Yeah. Um, so you, you've talked about there how uh, you know pr- print media, physical paper to, to obviously now it's much more uh, online. Um, but it's great that you've probably experienced both sides to that. Yeah. How would you currently say that the the current state of of the of the journalism world is you know for people coming out of university or people working in it how do you, how are you finding it it's so it's tough it's definitely tough um the, what 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 has happened over the last sort of twenty years is obviously there has been a significant and 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 steady and significant decline in people buying newspapers and that is because they get all the news online mm-hmm. of course so the internet became this dominant thing in in news media and a lot of a lot of providers and companies decided right we have to kind of put every all our eggs in the internet's basket and but the problem is is that no one has yet really found the way to make that 
pay as well as people paying mm-hmm. for the actual print product or yeah. more importantly actually paying for advertising inside the newspapers yeah it just doesn't it just doesn't stack up in the same way so you can get to a point where you have loads more people actually reading the product online but it's not bringing in the same amount of, of revenue as you would get from the print product i mean if you take take where i work at, at the echo for example you know that not that long ago they had hundreds and hundreds of journalists and you know, we, we're, we're, we're better off than, than many because we're a big, big regional paper and we have tried to keep large numbers of journalists, but just just naturally in any declining industry, you're going to lose more and more people yeah. from from those jobs. Um, I remember one of my former editors saying, we had we used to have like a, an aviation desk. All right. Or, or you know, specific yeah, reports yeah. about aviation. Like, that <laughs> seems absolutely mad to yeah, me. Yeah. You know, we currently don't have a health reporter. So wow. it's it's changed rapidly even in the time i've been in it it has changed and and especially in like in like regional journalism which i've always stayed in because i, I do believe in it but it just gets it gets tougher and, it, and there are more more rounds of redundancies and more people more people than having to do more with with less it, it it's hard but you know i i do believe i do believe in it and i think we should have a really strong local and regional press because it's absolutely vital to to the running of society mm-hmm. democracy um but yeah i, I feel quite a little bit battle hardened from you know all the all the sort of rounds of redundancies I've, yeah. I've, I've witnessed and been through. It, it can get pretty demoralising, but still some brilliant people working in, yeah. in the industry. Well, speaking of not just uh, we'll, we'll talk about your 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 work with the Echo. You've also um, you frequented or you've, I've seen myself. Uh, you've been on uh, Newsnight, Sky. What's that? What's that like for you know going on the on national side of things and and talking about uh, the issues of the day? How yeah, you find that? yeah, I, I enjoy it. I have a, a regular a slot doing the, um, the the newspaper review on Sky News. I've done that for the BBC as well, and then stuff like Newsnight and, and the Daily Politics. Um, it became it became really good for me in that sense. And actually, during the lockdown, there weren't many good things about the lockdown, mm. but because they couldn't physically have people in studios, mm-hmm. everyone was coming in on on Zoom, which meant that they could cast the net wider than just the people who could get to the studio in London easily. Yeah. Um, I have been into the studios in London, but obviously it's a lot of effort, mm-hmm. and you know they, they have to pay to get me on the train down there and stuff. Yeah. So they na- they naturally lean towards people who can come in. But it was great because it meant people like me and others from up north, for example, would get an opportunity. Um, you know, it's same with like doing the Downing Street press conferences during COVID, and yeah. we always I did a few of those grilling Boris Johnson and stuff, and yeah. that was really exciting, and everyone was watching that. You know, millions of people were watching that, so it was a really good um, opportunity and. And yeah, I, I as I say, enjoy the broadcast stuff. Enjoy doing a bit of that on on the side, um, and just representing the area that I report on because, you know, everything is so London focused with the media and and the way that the country works as well. It's just all London based, and I think it's great to have some more regional voices on national TV and national radio, flying the flag for you know up north. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, so in the last couple of years, there's been some. Uh, massive things have happened to this country and the world and i've seen firsthand you know for example uh we're, i think we're living together during brexit and all that how that came out and obviously more recently covid um can you talk about you know your um experiences during covid um what was um, there's many challenging things in it but what was what were the, the, the standout negative memories or tough memories for yourself I think for me it was the relentlessness of, of it all and obviously the bleakness of it all. So I, um, as the kind of, as the politics reporter at The Echo, I, as soon as things were happening, I had the best, I was probably best placed in terms of my contacts, the council, the MPs, the, the, to, to get the, 
the news through first, you know, for example, first cases in Merseyside, mm-hmm. first people in hospital, all those kind of updates. And as I say, we didn't have a specific health reporter, so yeah. that kind of kind of just naturally came under my remit. And you know, you as a journalist, when the biggest story in the world's happening, you want to play an active role in it. You desperately want to be involved in it, and you. You know, there's a sense of duty there, mm-hmm. especially when you know things like all the tiers and the different rules that were coming in, yeah. the different areas. Mm-hmm. Liverpool and Merseyside was often at the forefront of that because we had often had the worst cases, first people to go into tier three, um, first guys to do the mass testing. Oh yeah, that happened. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of national focus on us, and I, and we made a decision early on that we were like, look, we are going to be a really important source for people here, a really important place for people to come and get trusted information. And unlike some other, some other publications that I won't name, mm-hmm. we just decided that we were going to be just factual yeah. throughout and not guess at stuff. And just we needed people to trust us on this. Um, and I do believe we did that, and I think we got we got a lot of trust. Obviously, there's some people who thought the whole thing was a hoax. They they're mm-hmm. not going to be complimentary, but a lot of yeah. people were nice, and they would come. You know, please explain this to us. Please mm-hmm. explain that. And I, I, as I say, I, I remember I, I opened my DMs on Twitter before, just as it was happening. I was like, "Look, anyone needs to get in touch," and and it was it was great that they did, but it did make the whole thing all-consuming. Right. And I've said to you before that while other people who weren't working in in the news, who were obviously having a really tough time as well, but they could switch off mm-hmm. and they could maybe not think about it for one day or, yeah. or try and move on to another. And obviously, I couldn't do that because every single day for those two years or whatever it was, I was I was writing about this, I was reading about it, I was researching about it, I was talking about it, it was just everywhere. And I think for, when I look back on it now, I think for like the first six, seven months of it, I was just running on adrenaline. You know, I'd, I would log on to my computer at, at 8 a.m. and just work right through till, till nighttime often because there was always something else to say, always yeah. something else to report on, always something else to, to inform about. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I want to be clear, you know, this is absolutely nothing compared to people who are actually in hospitals working and, and going out on the front line, you know, bus drivers, people who actually, I, I was able to do this from the comfort of my own home, which yeah. I'm grateful for, but mentally it's, yeah. just dra- it's draining. And, um, you know, it culminated in, in um, November of 2020, I, I was able to go into the, one of the hospitals here, the big hospital in Liverpool, and onto a ICU COVID ward, mm-hmm. um, which was a... You know, uh, something I'll never ever forget. Watching people who were who were be, you know, fighting for their lives, people who who then went on to sadly die. Watching these doctors and nurses up close in a war zone, basically. Yeah. Um. And again, you know, it felt very important to do it, but it doesn't have to stay with you. It mm-hmm. hasn't such an impact. So, um, by sort of January twenty twenty one, yeah, I'm sure you'll remember that there was a hope that you know the mm-hmm. vaccines were sort of on happening, and you were hopeful, but I, I, you really wanted things to be to be looking, you know, New Year. You wanted things. To, I mean, January is a depressing enough month as yeah. it is, isn't it? Yeah. And I, remember, I just remember, just I think I just ran out of of steam really. And one morning, I just went to back to my home office, and my laptop wouldn't turn on or something small like that. And it just it just it was like a powder cake. It just set me off, and mm. I just burst out crying and was just overflowing with with tears. I just could not stop crying. And it, it, yeah, it just felt like all of that tension and all of that sadness and all of that frustration, frustration and strain of the last sort of seven months or whatever was just kind of poured out in yeah. this very quite cathartic moment, really. But um, yeah, it was, it was it was a that was my sort of breaking point, I think, for for all of this because 
you know, my wife had been saying to me, you know, you, you, you'll never not do, you know, you're working all day and then when you're not, you're responding to people on Twitter yeah. about what they're asking, you're, you're, you're tweeting about it, you're ringing people, you just, it's just, yeah, all encompassing. And I also really um, don't like working from home. Um, it's just not good for me. Um, I, I have quite some bad anxiety and when you are just not around anyone mm-hmm. and you're just in your head. Yeah. Or you, the only interaction you have that day is someone calling you a horrible name on, on Twitter or something, or telling you that, you know, you're a you're a, a liar and you're making all this stuff up about COVID and they're going to come and get you and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's just a lot. It's just a yeah. lot. Um, so yeah, it was tough, but I, I do look back on it and I am I am proud of what like the, the job we did on it and the job I did on it. Yeah. To be honest, like it was the hardest thing I've ever reported on ever, and it went on forever. But I'm 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 glad I was if if I was if I was able to help anyone with just with information and, and stuff like that then you know i'm happy yeah. about that well i've seen i've seen it firsthand obviously with the work you're doing um on for example twitter i think at this moment you've above fifty five thousand followers you, you mentioned about having open dms everyone knows how uh twitter at times can be accessible uh, but yeah. i think your work that you i've seen you do and, and the way you responded um with information which which uh, was, was excellent Thanks, but mate. i'll give you that tenor for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was obviously COVID was tough, but I I'd like you to tell the story um, how you some got... light relief is yeah it? yeah <laughs> the, the step change um, yeah, yeah. Well, it, well well the funny thing is it, I, just after what I said then I think that this incident this scenario that happened came at just the right time for me and for lots of other people and I think that might explain why it went so so mad and so viral because everyone was fed up this was February of so I just had this big breakdown in January yeah. February, um, this this incident happened, and, and yeah, it just felt like at that time everyone needed something to laugh about. So I, I'm not, you know, it, I'll explain it, and it is very funny, but I, I I think it was the effect was amplified because everyone was so bloody miserable. Yeah. So I'd come back from a morning dog walk with my other half, and was preparing to then go back up to to the office to to start work, um, and I got this. So sorry, I should explain. The day before, actually, I'd had a text from the GP. Mm-hmm. So this is February. So vaccines had started to roll out, but to oh, to the very like clinical groups. So very very old people and morbidly obese or with but serious illnesses that make yeah. them extremely vulnerable. Clinically extremely vulnerable, I think was the word, the phrasing. Mm-hmm. And I'd got a text the day before from the GP saying, "You have qualified for your vaccine. Come and get it." Now at this point, I was thirty two. No, no known health issues. You know, bit chunky, but not over. I wouldn't say dramatically overweight. <laughs> I was saying I've weighed about seventeen stone, and I'm six foot two. So, as some people, kind people did point out, it did it did notch me into the obese category. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I didn't think I was in any any mild peril really. Um, so I was like, that's a bit strange. Um, and then I didn't think anything about it. I thought I better I think about this because oh no, actually I rang I rang the GP and I said. Are you sure this is right? Because I'm, sh- I'm, I don't think that I should be in this group, and I don't think I should be getting it this soon. And the last thing I wanted to do was like go and get a vaccine that wasn't mine for someone who's much more yeah. vulnerable, because um, that would just that would just be wrong. And then yeah, they then the next morning I came back from this dog walk, and I got a call, and it was a very nervous sounding guy <laughs> at the GP's office. He was like, "Hello, Mister Thorpe. Um, you, you called to inquire about um, being asked for a vaccine." I was like, "Yeah," and he was like. Um, yeah, I, I am really, really sorry to tell you that that, that that was an error, and that it is not it is not your turn to to get a vaccine. And and I was like, that's totally fine. Uh, I didn't think it was right, but just out of interest, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. How, what? Why did I get 
called up and he said, um, are you are you six foot two? I was like, I am actually, yeah, why? And he's like, yeah, I think I see where the problem is. They've put you down as having a height of 6.2 centimetres. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And he said, and with your current weight of 17 stone, that would give you a body mass index of 28,000. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, the funny thing is, when I um, when I texted my family group to update them on this, um, they were all laughing, lots of laughing emojis. And my mum, my, my stoic Irish origin mother, just went, well, I still think this is a wake-up call you need, so. <laughs> <laughs> In the way that only, you'll notice, only an Irish mother could be so, so brutal. Um, yeah, it was it was very amusing. And it, it like, it. so what happened was I, I, I wrote about it on Twitter, did yeah. a little thread, and it absolutely exploded. Like, yeah. just went completely mad. Um, and then I, I wrote about it as well. It was in every national newspaper. It, my wife's um, pet her mum's family come from New Zealand and they were like Liam's on the news in oh, New Zealand wait, yeah some guys that I met at a, uh, a music festival in Reykjavik about 10 years ago and just drunkenly became friends with on yeah. Facebook yeah. never spoke to them since messaged me you're all over Icelandic TV <laughs> <laughs> I was like you're the, you're the midget vaccine guy and I was like oh my god um, and it went on for ages it was on the last leg and have I got news oh, for you and yeah, it was yeah. featured in all of this stuff and yeah it was I, I, you know I do just I was at one point. I was a, a bit like, I, you know, I'm a serious journalist. I yeah. don't want. I don't want to always be known as the six point two centimeter guy. But for that few, that couple of weeks, I just think everyone needed a good laugh. Yeah. There was a couple of things around that time. Do you remember the the lawyer on Zoom who accidentally made his face a cat? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was sort of similar timing, and I think just those couple of things. Everyone was just like, it was really nice actually reading when I was like reading the sort of the quote tweets. Mm-hmm. There's loads of people being like, oh, I've been feeling absolutely depressed about everything, but this proper tickled me. Uh, there was another guy who said he was like feeding his young son at 2am and just like s- pouring with snot because he was like <laughs> laughing so much. And you know, it was completely not, it wasn't me being funny, it was just something that happened to me. And it was just nice to, to share it and for people to have a bit of, yeah, a bit of light relief from all the gloom. I, I, I think, uh, I think uh, when I seen that come out, I think I messaged you like as soon as, as soon as I read it and I was, but I, even, even to this day, like I was actually before this uh, I was talking to a workmate I was telling them, and I tell him who I was talking to and I, I told him that story and, and I think it does strike a chord with people that that time and, and, yeah. and it's that, that light relief um, I still get like people still so I, I was get, um, I was best man at my friend's wedding last year and his sister came up to me and was like Liam Liam I haven't really met her properly but maybe once and she just said I, I didn't realise that you were the tiny vaccine guy <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what I'm always going to be known as. But yeah, no, I'm happy with that. I think one of the, one of the comments that like, you said as well when that, that came out, uh, it made you question, why wasn't that person the first one? Per- person? Yeah, why, why, why hadn't the NHS been in touch with this, this 28,000 BMI guy who only measured up 6.2 centimetres? Just this very, like, obese pancake, <laughs> as someone said, just slithering around. <laughs> yeah, but that was the first time the NHS had, had bothered to, to worry about me. Brilliant. So I can, um, I'm sure there's always the, the, the lighter side of the job as well. There's, there's always amusing stories. But yeah. can, can, you've, you've, you're in Liverpool. Um, how would you describe like the, 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 the what, what, what? I'm, I'm sure there's like multiple stories you talk about. But, but can you tell us what's the major um, concerns of the people in this city at the moment? So you know, it's it's a great city, Liverpool. It's it's got so much going for it. It's a, an amazing kind of destination, and it's emerged from some very difficult times in the 1980s and early 90s of 
mass unemployment. We had the Toxic Riots, obviously the, 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 the sort of battle between the militant Labour Council and Margaret Thatcher's government. Um, it was a yeah, it was by it was a terrible time for the city, and the city has kind of grown from there to the point. Then, in two thousand and eight, they were the capital of culture, mm-hmm. European capital yep. of culture, which was a massive, massive moment in the city's renaissance, um, and it, and it's grown from there. And you know, the city centre particularly has, has has really taken off. But if you go out to to various other places, there is huge issues of deprivation. Some of the some of the worst areas of deprivation in the whole country, actually. The Liverpool Walton constituency in North Liverpool is the most deprived parliamentary constituency. So people are people are poor. People have poor health issues. Actually, um, COVID really exposed some of these issues. Deprivation is definitely linked to poor health. You know, if you if you are struggling for money, if you have, you are more likely to have health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 what's particularly bad in Liverpool is a long history of respiratory issues as well like COPD and, and asthma and things like that, which obviously COVID exacerbated massively. And sadly, that's why we, we lost so many people here, actually. So, it's a, you know, Liverpool is a really proud city. You know, for, for, you know as a lot of port cities are, it's, it's got a wild side, definitely. Yeah. It's, yeah. You, know, you only have to come through town today and mm. all the Irish bars are, are out going wild. It's, yeah. You know, it's, as you'll know, it's, a, it's got a strong Irish yep. theme to it. Um, loads of fun, you know, really, really good fun. The people are just great. They're so... Friendly to give you the last quid, even if they're, even if they're struggling themselves. Um, but yeah, there's a feeling that, particularly under successive Conservative governments, it's been, you know, badly treated. Austerity has been brutal. No city has suffered in terms as as many cuts as Liverpool, and these are cuts to really important services: children's services, youth yeah. services. You know, so you you'll see, you know, issues with crime in some areas where previously there was a a children's centre or a youth centre that doesn't exist anymore. These these are widespread issues in, 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 in many places, but yeah, Liverpool has definitely suffers with those. And I think that's why people are really, you know, it's a really political place, fiercely political. Um, and, you know, lots of young people seem very politically engaged, I would say, which isn't always the case. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant place, but it's definitely got its challenges. And what would, um, so like your, uh, you've, very, you know, what, congratulations as again, but winning those awards. But, but how do how do you feel that like what is there anything that that that's, um you see you've worked on recently where you're are you is your role a lot of going out to those deprived areas and and telling those people stories to bring attention to it and have you seen any positive change as through Echo's work or supporting of yeah so well so in, in terms of stuff I've sort of been most proud of um or stuff that's really meant a lot to me as well um a couple of years ago I did. A, I did a, a sort of series of pieces about this man you know, he was called Stephen Smith and his his friend got in touch with me and sent me some photos of him and I could not believe how Emerson ill he looked. looked. Yeah. He, he was weighing six stone in weight. Uh, you know, he was about 64, I think, his age. He was six stone in hospital. And as I got more to know the story and, and speak to him and, and his friends, um, yeah, he had been, basically, he was very, very ill. Um, he'd had... Um, pneumonia and various other illnesses that had made him re- really really bad and yet he was being deprived of, of any kind of benefits um, any kind of disability benefits the, the DWP were just constantly telling him that he was fit for work someone went out to, to, to see him and the fact that he could walk from one room to the other they deemed him fit for work wow. but that was all he could do wow. it's just crazy absolutely crazy so by the time he, he 
they got in touch with me. He was in hospital, and then he had to. This is just like so perverse. He had to sign himself out of hospital so he could go and defend himself at a tribunal against the DWP, and which he actually won, and wow. he overturned the decision. Okay. So he overturned the decision, which meant his benefits were were then instated. But when we got involved, we said, well, if they've been instated now, the last two years when he's been fighting for them, he should have it all backdated as well. And it became, you know, once we published the pictures on the front page, it was a, an international story, actually. He, Stephen's emaciated body was held up as a symbol of this kind of cruel and pernicious benefit system that the Tories had brought in, um, where, pe- you know, the welfare state was brought, was brought in by that post-war Labour government, and it was there to, to help people, to catch people who fell through the net. But what they've done to it now is make it a pernicious system where they do everything they can to right. to get you off benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my other half works in a charity where they deal with a lot of people who who are, who come in and need help to appeal against these decisions yeah. where they've been taken off benefits, and the the the, the percentages are wild. Something like ninety percent, um, I think she told me, win on appeal, but they just make it so hard for them that loads of people don't appeal. Yeah. So the system is weighted against these people. It's weighted against vulnerable people like him. He's drastically ill. He's not got the energy to do that. He, he tried his best, and he did really well actually. However, when we when we then successfully campaigned for him to get the money paid back, and it was like four grand, I think, um, he died. And so, I you know we don't know. We'll never be able to say exactly what 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 it was, but it's hard to believe that you know, two years of exhausting fighting against the state won't have made him worse. And the worst thing about it is that that four grand that he got paid back paid for his funeral. Oh my God. Which is, you know, it's hard to think of a better kind of, a stronger kind of symbol of everything that was wrong with with this system than than that. Um, A system that is supposed to be there to support people that, you know, made made this very ill man much, much iller and in the end paid paid for his funeral with with, with the only money he got back. It's... Yeah, so that was a, a really hard story to work on, but I felt it was really important. And I do think, you know, it can change people's minds. Mm. Too, for too long, uh, this narrative has, has cut through with some people about scroungers and, yeah. you know, oh, the, the, these people are all just mm. having an easy life. You know, he wasn't having an easy life. No. He was having a terrible life. Yeah. And many people I've come across ha- have, been, have been let down by the system, but it's easier for the government to spin this idea of benefit scroungers, you know, they're, they're, they're sat at home doing nothing while you go to work, play people off against each other, yep. be divisive, that's what they want. We're, we're seeing it now, we're seeing more of it now, with particularly with asylum seekers, um, the narrative coming out of the government, you know, it's them versus yep. us, that's what they want you to think. They're they're taking up all this money while you're doing this. It's, it's classic kind of divide and conquer. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm lucky that um, at the Echo we have a very, their political stance line, aligns with mine, it's wanting to fight for people and and um, you know, give people a voice who don't always have one, and that's a, a massively important part of the job. I think. Oh, that's um, that's a great story. I do, I do remember that, and it was a very, a very, uh, very good piece. What would be the um, the major kind of, uh, how how to to that point and and that story and and and, and Stephen Smith's story? How do you not because you because of your nature and about how you you've such a, an interest in 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 these issues. And you can talk to or report on, probably come face to face with people who can make decisions in the country. I know it won't get you anywhere, but how do you not get extremely frustrated to a point where you might lose your head? Yeah, no, it's a good point. You obviously have to retain a level of professionalism. Um, you know, I've interviewed 
David Cameron, Boris Johnson, you know, plenty of ministers along the way. And, you know, they, they, I'm sure they've, they've done their reading in the echo. They probably know what I think of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when it comes to, the, to sitting down with them, you have to push for answers. And if you, if you just shout at someone and tell them that you, you think they're an idiot or, or whatever, then it's, you're just not going to get any answers. And, yeah. you know, there are some people, particularly in Liverpool, I think, who would be like, you shouldn't even sit down with them. Mm. But I still think that it's my job to try and push them on stuff, yeah. get them to answer, make, yeah, make them uncomfortable on, on areas where you can, um, you know, you see it on TV, the best, the best interviewers, they, 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 they've really done their homework and they really dig into people and they, you know, they, they, they make the politicians work hard, yeah. you know. So yeah, you're right. Sometimes it's like you sat there and you're like, "This is just, this is just more spin that you're throwing at me." And that's the other thing you have to try and cut that out because you, when I first started like interviewing politicians when I was quite young, you just sort of let them speak and you'd be like, "Oh, okay, I'll, I'll get all that down." Yeah. And then the older you get, the, the sort of wiser you get to it, you realise this is just pre-prepared answers. You've got to kind of kind of cut, stop them in their tracks and challenge them on that and say, "Let's move on." That that that's probably the hardest bit. Really. Oh. What would um of those people like you talked about there and the, who and and you don't need to say that you like them dislike them but who who would you say was the most interesting person in 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 the political arena that you've actually spoken to? That's a really good question. Because I know you've talked to say, Farage and all that in the past and yeah um yes yeah, yeah yeah Farage was a was a, a a tough one because that that is someone who I I am so so diametrically opposed to mm. politically. But obviously, he came to Bolton, and we had to kind of sit down. He was a, a very, you know, massive um, political figure at the time. Yeah, you had to kind of challenge him on that stuff. Um, you know, uh, Kistama, Boris Johnson, David Cameron. Um, I I had a really good chat with Gordon Brown actually. Oh, okay. Um, he um, you know he he got in, he got in touch after um, I had. Um, eye surgery because he'd yeah. also had some eyes oh, right. he'd had some surgery oh. and that was a different that was more of a kind of friendly chat yeah, but yeah. that was just really nice oh, that's good um, but yeah, yeah I'm, sure, I'm not sure about like the, the, the most interesting I think um, I remember D- David Cameron was like I was at Bolton I had never done anything of that scale before Yeah, that one was the one I was very nervous about it um, and I felt I gave him a good a good spa um, yeah. you know probably only 23 or something so yeah, that, that that one was will stand out in the memory because it was the first time I'd ever ended up interviewed a prime minister, um, and I I was determined to not be an easy ride, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, Make yeah. Mark. That was interesting. It, um, is there is there anyone out there around the world that you would love to interview? Yeah, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Like I just I just do not think we have seen in this in the in this in my generation a someone who can communicate like him mm-hmm. like. You know, if you whether you agree with him politically or not, um, you know, uh, I think he did he did some some really good things for America, and obviously some things were less good. Um, but his oratory style and his communication and his, his the way he comes across, and you know, particularly compared to who followed him, <laughs> yeah, yeah, was just I've always massively, massively admired it, and he's hugely intelligent. Um, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to sit down and, and have a have a real like one one on one with him. That'd be a privilege. If anyone listening in has got contacts, <laughs> yeah, if you can, if anyone knows Michelle, uh, <laughs> get on to. Um, so what? Bringing it back to, to more to more locally, uh, and and probably where, who who knows when the next general election will be and mm-hmm. the changeover uh, in, in leadership. What do you think the? Um, how do you, you talked about Liverpool? We talked about the city, and and it obviously very it's a very labour uh, city. Um, 
what, where do you think it'll sit so that Liverpool can play a part in the in the next election? Do you, and what's your prediction, or do have you a vision of what can what will happen uh, when, the, when we have to go back to the ballot box? You know, it's interesting. Um, people, I guess, yes, Liverpool is a Labour city now. All five MPs are Labour. Um, but Labour has had significant problems in Liverpool. Um, the council here, which has been run by Labour since 2010, has been involved in a, a, a corruption scandal. Um, the former mayor was arrested. Um, the, there was a, a government inspection that highlighted huge, huge failures around land deals, around the culture of the place, around wasted money. So we've got local elections coming up. Um, and yeah, I expect Labour to keep control of the council, but I think they might suffer a few more losses. Um and then, and then, in terms of the national picture, there was also the interesting dichotomy between Keir Starmer as, as a Labour leader and Liverpool, which is you know, mm. quite a socialist city. Mm-hmm. Um, so Corbyn was very, very popular here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I don't think Starmer is as popular here. Yeah, it's, I don't want to generalise because there's people on all types of the spectrum, but you know, Liverpool has a, has a kind of socialist tradition, um, and Starmer is you know more to the sort of centre mm-hmm. than that. Um, but I think. I do think people are just desperate for it not to be a Tory government anymore. Yeah. 13 long, grinding years of austerity, and I've talked about the impacts of that in a city like this. You know, People don't know what it's like to not have a Tory government in, in, in Liverpool. And my suggestion would be that you know, even, even a, a Labour government that maybe you are, if you are not completely aligned with is surely going to be uh, a better option for a city like Liverpool where it might actually pay some interest and, and invest in some areas of it and just, just yeah, just just if you've if you've got a a Labour city region mayor like Steve Rotherham, a Labour Council and a Labour government all in, in Liverpool, then there's a lot that can happen. Yeah. At the moment it's like you know, you sort of you have to crumbs the odd crumb from a Tory government that is largely disinterested because they're never gonna get votes here. So they, they, why would they, why would they spend time and effort on Liverpool? Because that's how they see things. They, they, they go, off, they help out the areas that, that they can get votes in, basically. Because again, from I suppose my my opinion on, on like Keir Starmer is probably a bit more like a Tony Blair kind of middle of the road kind of guy. Um, not quite, uh, not quite well, as charismatic though. N- yeah. yeah, and I, I, I like whatever you look, think, whatever you think about Blair and, and what he did, he he was a very charismatic politician. And I think one area Starmer just lacks a bit is that presentation style. He's a yeah. bit modern. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, I think there was a, a clip I saw. Uh, it might have been before he even became a leader, where he was uh, he was being challenged about uh, I think it was in in, in, York, in Yorkshire somewhere, and he was he kept just repeating about how he met uh, tax drivers locally, and they're like big deal, like you know you you're trying to come across as the man of the people. Yeah. Uh, I'll get off my soapbox now, but uh, <laughs> but what, bringing it back to say Corbyn, do you think? Um, do you think that if if would it, would you would you predicted obviously you can't change the past and 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 we are where we are now but do you think a Corbyn or a Labour government what what would you say would be the the noticeable differences in people's lives? So if you, you know whatever you think about Jeremy Corbyn and I think I think if I've been really honest I would say I I, I don't think he was a, a a great leader. I don't think he's a natural leader, mm-hmm. and I don't think he thought that either. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't in his plan. Yeah, yeah. But the policies, many of the policies that were in, particularly that twenty seventeen manifesto, would have been life changing for people. Just things like you know bringing you bringing the the trains and 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 water back into public control, so yeah. people can get around safely and cheaply, and they're not swimming amongst feces. <laughs> you know, yeah. just things that 
you know, quite you know, even not even as as radical as as the right wing press would would make them out. Um, you know, tuition fees, the the universal credit system, which is deeply unfair. They were they they were they do think they were all geared at making people's lives better. Um, and I was disappointed when Starmer got in because he he'd not disappointed that he got in when he when he got in he did say he would take many of those progressive policies with him mm-hmm. and so far that hasn't really happened okay um, we are obviously will remain to see what comes in their manifesto but the big I think the, the big disappointment a lot of people around here feel is that those those policies that were popular um, have not yet seen the light of day in Starmer's Labour Party um, things like you know as I say I think the, things like um, public ownership I think the for me the evidence is just overwhelming now that this this privatisation has made things worse yeah if you look at the, the creeping privatisation in the NHS if you look at the water companies and if you look at the, the trains you know all all disastrous really yeah how can how you know people say oh the market will sort it out it'll lead to best competition well that's not happening with Avanti that's not happening with yeah. Transpennine we're getting the worst of all deals. It's expensive and it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, I think that those things stood out for me. And uh, but I think that the what's obviously helped Starmer is just how appallingly bad uh, things have been with the Tories. You know, obviously you look at Liz Truss. No one could have predicted it could be quite as, as calamitous as <laughs> yeah, that yeah. and what that's done. And I think however much Sunak tries, he's he's going to struggle to overturn that that really stubborn polling difference. I think Labour's other big, big hope now is that the the SNP is just in complete meltdown yeah. in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge opportunity for, for Labour because since they kind of came to prominence and sit, all the time Sturgeon was there, Scotland was basically just yeah. off the map for Labour. Yeah. And if you remember, you know, under Blair and Brown, Labour was dominant in Scotland. So so when, if you look at like paths to victory in the next general election, there was... There was there were, Scotland just wasn't part of it really I think Labour probably thought we could pick up a few seats now it's all in play because because the SNP and we don't know what more is going to come out in, in this investigation so that's a huge huge bonus to Labour when they're looking at how they get a majority I think they will get a majority I hope you're enjoying this episode with Liam Thorpe if you are why don't you subscribe to the podcast and give it five stars also on Twitter and Instagram, General Spec Podcast. Now back to Liam. Now time for a, a change in topic. Getting yeah. a bit, getting a little, getting away from the your your day job. Mixing it up, mixing it up. Yeah. Um, tell us about your dog Billy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, he's around it somewhere. Um, in fact, I think if you listen carefully, you can hear his uh, his claws <laughs> walking around the place. So Billy is uh, our dog. He is nearly three, or roughly around that area. We don't actually know his birth yep. date, and that is because he is a rescue dog from Romania. Um, so we decided. I I love dogs. I had dogs growing up. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is quite interesting. I was terrified of dogs as a kid. Oh, okay. As a really small kid, I think I got chased by one once. And um, in a in a high risk manoeuvre, my dad decided to just get two dogs, and just sort of I think they call it immersion therapy. I just see how I got on with them, and uh, it worked because I absolutely adored them. Um, particularly one of them who who we had to leave was seventeen. He, he died at seventeen, which is a really good age. Yeah, it's massive. Um, so yeah, I've always loved dogs. And when me and my wife were living before in a flat, we thought it wasn't fair to to have a dog in a third floor flat. Yeah. As soon as we bought our first house, 
we we um, applied for a, for a rescue dog. Um, one of Tui's friends has has a rescue dog and, and also fosters rescue dog. Right. And we've seen on social media just how many street dogs there are in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe. And we just thought it would be wrong to, to kind of buy a dog here when when there's so many that need yep. rescuing. Um, and yeah, he was he Billy and uh, his seven siblings, six siblings were found in a cardboard box on the streets of Bucharest and sadly two of them died um, but then the charity managed to fix up five, the five of them uh, and then they sort of advertised them on Facebook and things like that yeah. and we applied and it was a very rigorous process like I've had I've had easier job interviews like, <laughs> and because you know they, the last thing they want as a yeah. rescue charity is to, for, to you know come over here and then be a bad fit and yeah. sort of send them back which mm-hmm. does happen which is terrible yeah um, and they wanted to know, you know, they were going to get walked, loads, and, and all that stuff, and that we were the right temperament because they've been through tough times. But he's just amazing. Like, we absolutely love him, completely fell in love with him. And, you know, d- during that period I was talking about before the lockdown, when I was really struggling mentally, really, um, he was just such a, a, a sort of support thing, mm-hmm. support system for me. Like, he would just come in and, and just, like, you know, nuzzle me a bit while I was, while I was feeling down and stressed or whatever or just I'd just go next door and, the, and just have a bit of a, a cuddle with him on the bed and it just makes you feel amazing about they, they are just this this the purest animals yeah. better um, humans they are they want nothing from you really except a bit of food and a walk and then they'll just give you unconditional love and um, yeah we me and my wife are just a bit obsessed with them really you, you recently uh, traveled to Romania mm. yeah so we went um to Bucharest um, we just to be honest it was a combination of things wanted to or I always like to try and find a new city in Europe that I've not been to yeah. um, and then we thought well what, let's do Romania and see if we can go to one of the shelters that, mm. that helped Billy um, and we, we, we found a similar one and um, yeah it was great to go but it's also really sad because you, you just see other dogs that haven't been rescued yet that yeah. are, are, are sad and, and you know I hate, I hate seeing sad dogs it's horrible but hopefully they will get the same same um, you know experience that he's got. He's he's now he's like you wouldn't know he's a rescue dog. He no. just, he's just l- lives a life of luxury now. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a bit hench. He's like the big, he's, he's big, a big, big quite boy. big. Yeah, he's about thirty kilograms. But yeah, he's he's, he's used to his comforts now. He, yeah. He's got a whole double bed to himself. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So then, um, Liam, then what would you uh, let's talk touch upon your uh, your Irish heritage? You're, you spoke about your mum. Yeah, I, I think you travelled your mum her family from Dublin or was your mum from Dublin yes so my granny uh, was born and raised right next to St James's Gate oh, in I Dublin know. where the Guinness factory is and her dad was a, dra- a drayman delivery guy for Guinness oh. um, which is which is about as Irish as, as, <laughs> as a job gets um, and then my granddad Tommy he was from Athai oh I think Kildare uh, in Kildare yeah. not too far but I, th- I think we went it was about an hour's drive from mm-hmm. Dublin um, and yeah, then they they obviously they met and then they came over to to Manchester, um, and that's where my mum was born in Manchester. But obviously they're both they are both Irish, and then we growing up we had family over in Ireland and stuff. Um, and yeah, a couple a few years ago actually, my my brother in law had traced uh, done done. Um, he's quite interested in family trees, yeah, and, yeah. and lineage and things like that. So we went over for my mum's birthday, and we did a kind of tour of. So we did the Guinness tour. We went to the house that they lived in. And 
Guinness had, Guinness had got all all of my mum's granddad's records out for his time working there and saw like what he did. There's a few where he skipped off to go to the pub. Uh, <laughs> and then the most amazing thing actually was we went when we went to Athai where my granddad was. They're both dead now, sadly, but um, we went into the tourist information and my brother-in-law, genius, had set this up. And we were they, they'd got out this book of, like, sort of records of my granddad's family. Um, and then I just noticed, because they closed the tourist information, and it was tiny, tiny little place. And I just noticed this older fella walked in and I was like, I thought they closed it. And he just wandered over here. And then he just went to my mum and he was like, oh, hi, I'm your cousin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, what? <laughs> and then the, the woman who's working in the tourist information was like, oh, by the way, I'm your second cousin. And uh, I mean, you, you know what this is like. This yeah. is <laughs> sort of family everywhere. Yeah. And then so this guy, Aidan, who my mum had heard of but didn't really know. We all piled back to his and had a load of Guinness and ham sandwiches. Brilliant. <laughs> I, I, um, I think when, when I, we were living together, I think I, you, you always seem to have a good interest in, uh, in, in the tales of home. Mm. And uh, without, without naming names, I think there was a, a couple of, a couple of uh, stories I think you took a, a, a great interest in. Like, for example, when a, 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 unfortunately a horse uh, passed away. But, uh, yeah, that, that sounds like I'm taking right. an interest in a horse dying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not some sort of like vindictive person who hates no not at all it was it was just a very Irish scene yeah because uh, the, the, the man who's also died they had to go and get him from the pub because he he'd been drinking all drinking day, all day. <laughs> <laughs> he was in no fit state uh, yeah there were some some great stories of like village life that you yeah. used to tell us yeah great great days <laughs> but uh, you know it's interesting talking about Irish the Irish influence in Liverpool mm. is, is, is huge yeah it's, it's you, there's Irish bars in every corner there's loads of Irish people here you, you know you, you rarely bump into a scouser who is not in some way Irish, uh-huh. and obviously it was a huge, huge thing when when the famine happened and the port of Liverpool was their first port of call. Although I did do, I did find out oh, interestingly because a lot of people think that the Scouse accent is pretty much an amalgam of of Irish and sort of Lancashire. Uh-huh. Um, but speaking to some people who've done loads of research into it, it's it's more apparently it's one aspect of it is that, but it's more just a general um, sort of maelstrom of lots of different accents including lots of European accents oh. who all came through the port of Liverpool right and just kind of moved because if you think about it and I remember one of the guys I spoke to about this if you go across the northwest like Manchester Manchester Lancashire quite similar do you know what I mean it, yeah yeah it, it's a similar vibe of accent yeah very distinct get to the edge of Liverpool it's yeah. just a completely yeah utterly different accent yeah totally unique not like anything else um and yeah apparently it's, it's all it's all it was all forged in that um, that real melting pot that came through the port in the sort of 1800s and, and, and onwards um, and it's yeah I, I love the accent it's great um, so so Liam kind of to, to kind of to, to wrap up uh, or coming towards the end I like it when you say hey Liam it, it makes me feel that you're quite serious <laughs> <laughs> listen here listen now uh, time to get down to brass tacks <laughs> <laughs> what would um, what would you say is it your what's your predictions for the, the, the or what's your hope should I say actually for for the next couple of years in, in Liverpool and, and nationally? What would you what would you like to see happen, not opposed to what you actually think will happen? What would be your the dreams, I suppose? Or As in for, for the for wider? You, yeah, for, for Well, both, actually. <laughs> Pers- yeah, go, go, go you first and then go bigger. Well, so personally, obviously, I mentioned before, we are delighted to be um, expecting a, a child in September. And all, all you can really think about in that sense is you just desperately want them to be happy and healthy and... You know, and that, that we can kind of mm. we can do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I'm predicting a lot less sleep, <laughs> um, 
um, that is definitely the bit I'm most worried about because I, I, I like have like nine hours a night. Like I'm a right. proper, proper sleepyhead and I really struggle in the morning. So that's going to be an interesting challenge. Um, and yeah, hopefully continue to do some, some really good work um, that I'm proud of. That's, that's, that's all you can ever ask for in, in journalism. Um, I'm also writing a book Ooh. with um, Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, oh, and um, Ma- uh, Steve Rotherham, the mayor of the Liverpool City region. I'm sort of doing kind of ghostwriting work on it for them. Um, it's their kind of vision of what, why the North should be better, how we can make the North better, why they left Westminster to come back up North. Right. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's, it's a real honour for them to, to ask me to help them out on it, really. What's the timeline for that? Uh, <laughs> good question. Uh, I'm, so I have to submit a draft by the end of June. Okay. Um, and then hopefully it will be published in January. Very good. Yeah, so get most of the work done before the child arrives. That yeah. that was the key. In terms of the country, you know, I want I I am very open about this. I think we it, it's time for a change in government. We've had thirteen years of the Conservatives, and I've I've seen firsthand that the damage that's been done, mm-hmm. particularly to communities like here in Liverpool. I worked in Bolton before, saw similar issues. Um, it's time for a change. It's time to see something done differently. Differently, um, and I would hope that. A Labour government of any stripes would would improve people's lives um, and would bring in policies that would actually help the poorest people, that would help communities that need help, and, and wouldn't just help areas that are going to vote for them. You know, <laughs> so yeah, that's and I think I think that will happen. I think w- whatever people think of the current Labour leader, or whatever, I think they are people are just fed up of this now. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and I you know and, and if, I'm, if I'm honest, I'd like to see us rejoin the European Union. I know that's currently that's not on the on the cards for either of the the big the big two parties, but the, it, Liverpool again we keep bringing it back to that is a city that was it, it owes a lot to the European Union. Mm-hmm. You walk around the city centre, yeah, you can see or many a, a plaque or a marker of stuff that was paid for by yeah what's called Objective One funding from the EU. It, it really helped to rebuild the city, um, because the government wasn't doing it, and Liverpool feels a very European city and, and for that reason. Um, I think it's. I think it's. Um, the overwhelming evidence is that Brexit is causing us great harm, financially, economically, socially, um, and it's. Yeah, we'd be a lot better off if we were back in the in the club with our, our nearest and dearest in Europe. So, yeah, that's a bit more of a pie in the sky one, but I would like to see that. Um, I think that would that would help people's lives a lot as well. Yeah. Very good, Liam. Um, is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you'd like to bring up? What was I like as a housemate? That's a good way to finish, Ooh. I think. As a housemate, you... Um, Be so honest. Honest on the podcast. <laughs> I was del- Looking back, I was I was very happy to move in to, to, to you and the guys. We're great housemates, great great welcoming people. Um, and I'm not the cleanest person in the world either, <laughs> as, as Dominique will, will attest to. Um, but <laughs> at that particular time, Liam, you weren't the tidiest. And uh, things I always remember that you did, which I, I found funny <laughs> and slightly disturbing... Um, Cooking fish fingers on a filthy oven yeah. with no tinfoil. No tinfoil. Maybe, well, maybe that tests to uh, maybe you've built up like a big tolerance now. And you're, 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 I think I've just yeah. My, my my stomach is like it's like an iron stomach. <laughs> like it can cope with anything. So no, but but uh, I just never had tinfoil in, and I needed the fish fingers. So. <laughs> <laughs> but that 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 was that was uh, that was probably only one of the few in, in the minus column. But no, we had, uh, some, we had some mice issues at one point, didn't we? We, we? we had mice issues when you were there and throughout my time in that particular house. Yeah, so that can't be blamed on me. No, no. that might the, um. 
yeah, mice just didn't magically just appear in the house. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that that, that was uh, there were great days um, living living yeah, with journalists. There was um, I I always uh, enjoyed listening to the stories of the day at your time in, in the Bolton News, and then I think you, you then moved on obviously to the Liverpool Echo. But um, I, I I always fancied myself as a as a, a person who might come up with a um, a snappy slogan for yeah, your articles. You weren't, though. but I wasn't. No. Uh, <laughs> you would say a headline, and then I would be like, "But why? Why are you saying that?" that doesn't actually make any sense to the story and you could never really explain why you said it. <laughs> um, you yeah. Thought, you thought of the pun first but then you didn't actually link it to the story at all so I'm afraid you wouldn't get past the subtest. So. I think I uh, actually saw one uh, I, might, I might have sent it on to you recently but but, but when Joe, Bri- Joe um, Biden visited Ireland it was, it was raining and the headline in the, the Star newspaper what the headline said Joe Brolly and Joe Brawley is a uh, an ex uh, Gaelic footballer and uh, host of a very good podcast called um, Free State. But I just thought that was that, that was, was one from my from lo- your, that yeah was from your locker hundred percent because Joe Brawley I guess was in no way involved with the visit absolutely nothing to do no, with that, it. Actually, wait, he met him randomly, but he wasn't there in the photo. He wasn't there. Like, <laughs> so Joe Joe Brawley, I thought like that was that one tickled tickled me. But no, uh, yeah, it was great, great, great days, innocent days, um, and uh, mainly yeah. innocent. Mainly in this, yeah, a few late night parties, yeah, 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 and uh, I think, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I always enjoyed uh, listening to, to you and the, and the, and the, the fellow, your fellow journalists uh, uh, telling your stories. But um, but look at you now, you're uh, got Billy, got a baby on the way, know, yeah. all grown it's, up. It's you're, you're, you don't do you use tinfoil now? I I do use tinfoil. My um, I, my my wife would question how much I've improved. I think I've improved a lot, uh-huh. um, but obviously she has she has very high standards around the house, so I don't think I'm quite keeping up with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm better. She, she, I remember she came to help me move out of my last one of my last uh, shared houses. Yeah. I was pre- pretty horrified by the state of the place, um, and, and she knew it was going to be a, an uphill battle, <laughs> <laughs> making me domesticated. Uh, she has put up with a lot. She's obviously very patient, but yeah, we're um, yeah very happy where we are. We, we love living in Liverpool. Um, Obviously, raising our family here, um, that's the, with it, that's that's where we see ourselves, you know, for the foreseeable. Um, it's a great place to live, and we're really lucky where we are because we've got lovely, we've got Sefton Park just up the road, yep. we've got the, the waterfront just down there. Uh, it's a beautiful part of, of the city, so um, yeah, we we love being here, and as long as I can do a bit of hoovering now and again, I'll hopefully stay here well, <laughs> and won't be kicked out. That's it. Well, what a, what a note, what a way to end on. <laughs> Liam, absolute pleasure talking to you today. And uh, handshake, handshake uh, <laughs> for the people looking in. We just hand, we shook our hands. Yeah, it's Liam for the webcam. <laughs> <laughs> pleasure, Liam. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, TJ.